Hello, and welcome to What is Innovation? The podcast that explores the reality of a word that is in danger of losing its meaning altogether. This podcast is produced by Outlast Consulting, LLC, a boutique consultancy that helps companies use innovation principles to solve their toughest business problems. I'm your host, Jared Simmons, and I'm so excited to have Ahmad Thomas. Ahmad Thomas is the CEO of Silicon Valley Leadership Group, the region's most dynamic business association. As a change agent and next generation business leader, Thomas partners with the organization's member companies to promote entrepreneurial solutions to strengthen Silicon Valley business competitiveness, bolster its innovation ecosystem, and create shared economic value throughout the greater Bay Area. A hallmark of his leadership is in catalyzing industry-leading initiatives to operationalize change around diversity, equity, and inclusion from the boardroom to the C-suites and beyond. A former investment banker and senior congressional aide, he brings nearly 20 years of experience working both in and on behalf of nonprofit social enterprises, governments, and businesses, where he has honed a deep understanding of the essentiality of public-private partnerships and the intersection of equity, policy, and technology that drives Silicon Valley's innovation infrastructure. Thomas holds a BS from Cornell University, master's degree from the London School of Economics, and an MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Ahmad, I am so excited for this conversation. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Jared. Really excited to be here. Fantastic. Let's dive right in, shall we? What, in your mind, is innovation? Well, when I think about innovation, I'll speak very specifically to the public sector, because that's where I hope I'll be able to provide some insights or perspective that may perhaps be of value. But I think about making choices that are bold, I think about risks that are calculated, and I also think about building trust. Mm. And I think often when we look at policymakers, when we look at ideas that are new in that sphere connected to legislation or connected to many of our innovative grant programs across the country, as I reflected on that question and thought about maybe boiling it down to the three most connected points of where I see potential for success, those are the three bold choices, risks that are calculated in building and acting upon trust. Mm. Yes, yes. I'd love to just unpack that as the conversation goes along, but connection between choices, risk, and trust is nuanced. And I like that all of that is built into your definition because risk come to life through your choices. And I feel like the level of trust you have for the folks around you and your team and other things put a ceiling on the level of risk and the types of choices that you make. So it almost puts boundaries on it before you even get started. Certainly. And I think for me, my professional background is as an investment banker. What I do now, we do a lot of programmatic work trying to drive innovation to make Silicon Valley as inclusive as it can possibly be, as competitive possibly as a region, also advocating on behalf of our large tech employers, there's always an element of trust that's baked into innovation. Mm. For me as an investment banker, there are literally fiduciary and other restraints that are sometimes relevant. Right. But I think when you talk about working on behalf of individuals through a lens of policy, that thrust, trust threshold is incredibly high and incredibly important. That's why I often think of pilot projects as maybe the most innovative potential product mm -hmm. that you bring in the public sphere. 
which allows you to maybe take some baby steps, maybe be more bold in what you might be able to put forth, but in showing successes, having clear metrics behind what you're trying to get done, you can take that trust and allow it to really burgeon into more ambitious projects down the line. Mm, yes, I love that because pilot projects reduce the risk while building trust. Exactly. Yeah, that's a brilliant way to kind of dip your toe into the water without diving all the way in. Well, yeah, and I think another way to look at it maybe is what innovation isn't. Mm. I think going out and getting another $200 million for Program X is innovation. Of course, that's wonderful. I think that adequately funding what you're trying to do is clearly a significant piece of the puzzle. But too often, especially for leaders in government, you have a conflation between actual results, actual products or programs which break the paradigm and are different than methods that have been tried before versus additional funding or resources. Mm. And funding and resources, again, to underscore while critical, to me, that is not, that's not innovation per se, right? Innovation is trying to, based off of your well-reasoned conclusions and ideas, trying to take bold steps in a direction that might produce different results with methods that are different than you've tried in the past. Understood. That makes a lot of sense. Tell me more about paradigm breaking. I love that phrase and putting that in sort of context with the funding piece and those other elements of doing anything? How does the paradigm breaking suddenly make something innovative? Well, exactly. And to me, that's the difference between trying something new that might be a step or two outside of what you've done in the past versus trying something that is completely different and unique. And that's where I think that construct of a public-private partnership within a pilot program has the most potential within the space I operate in. But if I look back on things I've done and we think about paradigm breaking with a concrete example, mm -hmm. I had the good fortune as an investment banker to lead the first ever social debt offering that was done in the municipal space, a multi-trillion dollar market. This debt was issued on behalf of a nonprofit in San Francisco, a HealthRight 360, wow. that does very innovative work helping those most in need across California. They have about 40,000 patients. Mm -hmm. And we were able to put a deal structure together that brought private sector dollars in to fund significant public need. And those private sector investors were investing in an asset that was classed as a social impact asset. What we found there is that the original constructs and ideas that we had kind of put together to go out to market didn't work the first time. Mm. It was getting ready to go to market. And then thankfully with traders and a really good team, we had to make a decision to put a little more effort and thought into it. Not because it was a, a deal that wasn't saleable or highly impactful, but to your original point, because it was something that was pretty outside of the box. Mm. But to me, paradigm breaking is where you put forth something that truly hasn't been done before, maybe in a manner that you haven't seen before, and being able to communicate well around why you're doing that and what your expected results might be. I think that's the difference between doing that well and where you see a lot of efforts fail. Hmm. I'm not saying fail is a bad thing. I think, unfortunately, depending on the subject matter, failure is classed differently. But 
to me, those are some of the elements of success and innovation. Mm. Well, back to your original definition, the word risk means that there is the possibility of failure, right? So it's inherent and important to talk about, not just the fact that something might fail, but also what would failure look like in this scenario, in this environment? Is it the deal not getting done? Is it the deal getting done and poor outcomes? There are different types of failure associated with paradigm-breaking endeavors because, to your point, by definition, you're moving into a world where the old rules don't fully apply. I fully agree with that. But where I think really looking inward, Mm -hmm. trying to focus on in 2023 is this term grace and beyond a term, (laughs) fully embracing the meaning of it and specific to inclusion and belonging. Mm which has been a challenge in Silicon Valley, but a challenge across corporate America. And I have often held our work and efforts around DEI to the same standard that I might hold a large financial transaction I worked on as a banker or a product that one of our companies might work on here. Mm. And I think having more grace, having more willingness to iterate and having a mindset that isn't so binary around these issues could serve a lot of us better to drive the impact and change we're trying to drive and to be a little more specific and granular. Sometimes my sense, at least anecdotally then, is with DEI programs, when we don't achieve what we set out to achieve and certainly don't see those results early on, because it's emotionally charged, it's something that's highly personal, Mm. often we're less willing to iterate than we might be on product X. All right. First run didn't work, 161 iterations later, you've got your final product that you take to market, right? You're starting with an MVP and you're iterating along the way to get to an outcome that's what everyone wants to see. Mm. I think taking that mindset with our inclusion and belonging work, we could probably iterate more and drive even more innovation. Mm. That's very well said. And I think timely perspective, because the good intention, the well-meaning blood of energy that flowed into the DEI world in 2020 no longer has the momentum it had and cannot sustain programming on an ongoing basis. So we have to find that sort of secondary source of energy and innovation. And I think that term grace and not being so binary in our thinking is critical and core to how we can find a way forward in exactly the manner you just outlined. I bifurcate that just a little bit. Mm -hmm. In terms of grace and approach, that's something that I'm looking inward and trying to maybe better demonstrate and better keep center of mind with my thought processes as I'm looking at DEI efforts, particularly in Silicon Valley, but also across corporate America. Mm. Externally, there is a need to continue to be very intentional and direct in the change that we're trying to drive. One, because it's not just the right thing to do. I think it makes our companies more competitive. Mm -hmm. So our companies and our region able to be more successful, drive more revenue and innovation and creativity and products. But I think that we have a moment here that is particularly unique where this set of companies in Silicon Valley that I'm so fortunate to work on behalf of, I believe that we're advancing a new era of corporate citizenship. Mm. almost new era of leadership that to the earlier term is, I believe, paradigm breaking going forward. 
And so where you see gaps, whether it be within government not functioning as it might at all levels, whether it be in, in what we see from certain industries, I believe that our largest tech companies in Silicon Valley as a whole, this is really our moment to step up and show how we can continue to iterate and drive change around something that we believe is very important, mm. specifically inclusion and belonging or DEI. Uh, understood. Okay. That's a helpful bifurcation around the internal versus the external and the importance of the preservation of that momentum and this sort of new direction you see in corporate citizenship. The other point I would add to that is this work is also high burnout work. Yes. For myself to ensure that I'm able to deliver as best I can for our stakeholders trying to take that notion of iterating, trying to do so in a manner that's filled with focus on the progress we've made while also not forgetting where we need to go. I think that's all very important to keep your internal momentum. Mm. Well said. I'm reminded of some advice a friend gave me recently. We've made a similar split in our work from a consulting standpoint. We do product innovation and now we do diversity innovation. So we're opening a diversity center focused 100% on innovation and diversity work and all those other things. And a friend just reminded me that this is heavy work and you can't look at doing a two-day workshop for how to think about new and innovative ways to drive diversity in your organization the same way you think about a two-day workshop on how to make a new product or service for a company. It takes a different toll on you as a person and it also demands different levels and types of energy from the folks in the room. Right, right. And I think that's actually a place where we are seeing a fair amount of innovation, certainly from some of our leading companies in Silicon Valley, or I would say our leaders in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Think about 2020 and kind of the challenging moments we saw through the pandemic in terms of teams moving to more remote work situations just by necessity. Mm -hmm. You fast forward to where we are now. I think for the most part, we have work environments or goals for our work environments that are much more nurturing and person-centered and focused than perhaps we've ever had before. I think when we think about DEI, there's a connection here that's also relevant to mental health. And I think especially for our leaders of color, you look at George Floyd, or just unfortunately, there's so many the horrible situations to name, but that just hits you a little different. Yeah, too many examples to name. Yeah, right. You don't just roll out of bed on Monday and feel okay. No, you're thinking about your kids, you're thinking about yourself, you're thinking about your own experiences you may have had being pulled over and other things, and you can't just flick on a light switch and be that great person you aspire to be after things like that happen. I think eight, 10 years ago, pre-COVID, you just kind of had to deal with those things. I think coming out of this pandemic, there's a space where there's much more awareness. With our organization, we have mental health days. Mm -hmm. You don't have to request it. You don't have to go to HR and make something. If you don't have it going on that day for whatever reasons, no questions asked, you step away and take that time. Mm -hmm. I hope that that's creating a more just society. I also hope that that is driving retention and ensuring our best performers feel supported and at the end of the day, creating a better organization. So it's a long 
answer or a long thought, but I do think that there's progress being made that is maybe more specific to our leaders that are focused on innovation and focus on this type of creativity in Silicon Valley going on. That's encouraging. It's important work. And a well-made point, what I took from what you're saying is the fact that you make about there is work that is good for everyone that is also disproportionately good for the underrepresented groups. So, you know, mental health days and things like that, it's not a DEI initiative, but it is something that is disproportionately important for certain groups. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. So if you look back over your career and you've done a lot of different things in different sectors, is there a through line that innovation has played in your career? How has it maybe shaped where you are as a leader today? I would say looking at my own leadership journey, there's this notion of getting comfortable being uncomfortable. I'm not sure how directly that's tied to innovation, but it's certainly been directly tied to me being able to stretch myself and perhaps do things that on paper I shouldn't be able to do. Or maybe I don't say on paper because on on paper, it probably aligns much more closely than through lived experience. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Mm, yeah. Through lived experience, I shouldn't be able to do. Getting comfortable being uncomfortable and being able to do so from a, a young age or certainly very early on in my career was something that I think has propelled me. Now, some of this was just being tossed into the deep end. Right. A couple of decades ago, I started my career on Capitol Hill, working for my senior senator where you would be in the room with very powerful CEOs. You know, I've been to the White House and made presentations there and things like that. Wow. And you either get it done and deliver or, or you don't. Or you don't, right. I think sometimes when you're, when you're the only person in the room, you just pick up on it that, hey, I'm either going to step up and get this done or not. And putting my head down at an early age and just understanding that, yeah, I'm uncomfortable. I've never done this before. I don't maybe see the diversity I would hope to see or whatever else it might be. Just understanding that that was not a barrier, rather it was something to embrace. I think that's been very important. I talk to my kids a lot about that, which is funny. I think when you share lessons like that with people that you care that much about, it shows that it certainly had an impact on you. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great point. Do you see that necessity of being comfortable with discomfort and understanding that you may be bringing the diversity to the room, so to speak? Do you see your kids being placed in those types of environments as often as you were? Do you see any sort of progress in their lived experience versus yours? Well, what I focus on, on on this aspect of lived experience, which again is very much inward, mm -hmm. and the next step from that discomfort question is on self-confidence and an authentic self-confidence. So we hear about imposter syndrome and so many examples of just very challenging circumstances for not only black and brown leaders of color, but also for so many women in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I think at least in my case, being able to embrace that discomfort led to an ability to build authentic confidence in those rooms. And when you can build that authentic confidence in those rooms, the sky truly is the limit. But I don't say that lightly or flippantly. Mm -hmm. Confidence is a journey. And it's something that in an ideal world, 
I was fortunate to have that when you have not only mentors, but sponsors, you know, who are willing to step up and vouch for you, who are willing to give you that support when you need it, or really dress you down when you haven't delivered. Mm-hmm. I think that is that key next step. So there's the the discomfort piece, but that discomfort piece ideally evolves to a core self-confidence piece and a belief in what what you can deliver and understanding that your lived experience is not a hindrance, but rather it's something that makes you really unique and adds value. And at the end of the day, wow, if I'm confident that I can deliver, I know I'm going to be uncomfortable, but that's the set of circumstances I'm in and embracing that ability to, to drive unique and differentiated value. I think that's a pretty powerful combination. Oh, very powerful and such a great articulation of it. Hearing you talk about it, I can think about situations I've been in, times I've been called on in certain situations. And some of those times I had that sort of authentic confidence. And sometimes I was on the journey to developing it. But it's really a great articulation of it because it gives a person the space to think about where you are in relation to being authentically confident and what it takes to get there. It's almost a form of applying your innovation definition internally. Right. If you think about what choices do I need to make, what risks do I feel like I need to take, and how can that drive a deeper trust in my own abilities and my own skills and all those things. Right. And I think also maybe even getting more meta, (laughs) very personally for me, I felt that there was a responsibility or I still feel that there is a higher calling that I'm aspiring to. Mm. My dad was born and raised in the segregated South in rural Alabama, where we got family back to the Civil War. My mother's West Indian from Trinidad and Tobago, where she was an an immigrant. Mm. I think in a unique way, if you've ever spent time in the West Indies, I would say my mom's a very stereotypical West Indian mother. So I've always kind of had direct feedback there, which I've embraced and has been a real gift. Mm. Just my dad and what he had gone through, and he went on to have a full career in the military. You look at your situation in a boardroom, or even early on in my career, I always had that perspective, you know, how fortunate am I to even show up here and get this opportunity? Mm. What I can do to put myself in the best position to, to show all I've got. But again, all of that gumption, supported by individuals who maybe see something in you and are willing to support and mentor and sponsor you, that is how that individual fabric can be built in someone. So how do I take that upon myself now? Try to do the same thing to those young people in our organization or younger or mid-career people that I get to work with now, given the role that I'm in. And some folks respond to it well, and, and for others, maybe it's a little more time to get there. Mm. Yeah, well said. We'll have to compare notes later. I was born and raised in Southeast Alabama, so we may be distant relatives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, we'll have to compare trees. Building on kind of the way you support the younger generation in the organization, do you have any advice you would give innovators or folks listening to this podcast who want to drive impact in ways that you've described? What kind of advice would you have for them? Yeah, I think that ability to take calculated risks, 
So I, I would say maybe it's twofold. Being able to comfortably embrace failure in all of its iterations. And I'm, I'm speaking internally. Mm, okay, right. Now, internal failure, while many of us embrace it, and I do think you need to have fail-fast cultures, that's not advice that I give, uh, particularly to leaders of color. So I'm, I'm speaking internally. An ability to recognize and embrace those failings internally, but matching that with a calculation of risk. So understanding if you have done your market research, you're bringing product X or policy X to market, at the end of the day, it's a calculated risk, one that allows you to put forth something that might be paradigm-breaking or innovative, but maybe you're doing so with a pilot project, or maybe you're doing so in a manner that really allows you to put some metrics around this and show success. So it goes back to those maybe three notions at the top, you know, being bold, finding ways to be creative, matching that with risks that are calculated, and ultimately either building or acting upon trust that you've built in doing so. I think those metrics serve someone very well, certainly trying to innovate in the public sector. Thank you for that. I appreciate you taking the time and talking with us today and sharing your insights with me personally and with our listeners. I appreciate your time. And, and if there's anything we can do for you, let us know. Well, the same here, Jared. I appreciate it very much. I hope these insights are helpful. It's just a they personal perspective, but it, it's really been great to be on the show and great to have a chance to sit down with you today. Thank you so much. I'm Ahmad Thomas, Definition of Innovation Connected to Bold Choices, Calculated Risks, and Trust. Thank you so much for your time and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Take care. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this week's show. You can drop us a line on Twitter at Outlast LLC, O-U-T-L-A-S-T-L-L-C, or follow us on LinkedIn where we're Outlast Consulting. Until next time, keep innovating, whatever that means.